Good morning, Keystone. Uh, good to see everyone. Kids, good to have you in the service. Uh, parents, just to put you at ease, it's okay. We, we understand there's going to be more moving, more talking this morning. That's completely all right and to be expected with your kids here this morning. Uh, I have a question to start out. How many of you have played the game, Where in the World is Carmen Sandiego? Play that as a kid? Yeah, I don't know if kids still play that. I guess so. Okay, I haven't played it in a long time, but remember playing it as a kid. Uh, it's this game where you kind of uh, have to use your geography skills to figure out where is Carmen Sandiego, uh, who has stolen something so that you can track her down and, and capture her and get back whatever she's stolen. The, this morning to start out, we're going to play uh, a little game that's maybe similar, just that I'm going to title, Where in the World Are We? Where in the World Are We? And here's how it's going to work. I'm going to show you a picture from some city in the world. Some of them are in the U.S., some of them are outside the U.S., and based off that picture, you have to guess, where are we? Where are we at in this picture? Uh, you can, if you think you know the answer, just yell it out. Kids, if your parents know it, you can yell it out, uh, but we'll, we'll go through. I think I have seven of them on here, and so just whenever you see it and you think you know where we're at, take your guess. Here's the first one. Where in the world are we in this picture? A city, that is correct. What city are we in? What do you say? China. China, yep. Uh, we'll take China. It's Beijing. Yep, Beijing, China. Tokyo's close. Okay, that's our first one. Uh, where in the world are we? They might be a little bit harder to see than I thought. Any guess? Where is this? Nashville. Nashville is correct. Well done. Well done. Yep, you can kind of see as you look down all those signs. All right, third one. Where in the world are we? Jerusalem, yeah, that might be the easier, uh, easiest of all of them. I'm not sure what other ones we have coming up. What's the next one? What was that? Berlin is correct. Yes, yeah, there's a, a famous landmark in Berlin. Apparently, I didn't realize that. Next one. London, yeah, I thought the bus gives that away. All right, they might get a little harder. Where in the world are we? Not Seattle, no. Toronto is correct. Yep. Yeah, the first guess I figured it would be Seattle, or Seattle but this is Toronto. Uh, final one. Where in the world are we? Lancaster is correct. Yes, well done. Yep, it's kind of an odd picture, uh, but I think it's taken down King Street. Uh, if you see the little red kind of up in the corner, that's the, the Marriott, uh, and so that's where we are. Yeah, you, you think about when you see a picture... It can be a little bit disorienting to try to figure out, all right, where, where's this picture at? Where are we at? Think about how much more this would be the case if you were just dropped down in some city somewhere without being told where you were and trying to figure out what, where am I and what language do people speak and what's going on. It, it, it would end up probably feeling very disorienting if that happened. And maybe that's the, the feeling we have at times when we come to the Bible and pick it up and read in it. As we read the Bible, we believe God speaks through this powerfully into our lives to change us. There's a guy by the name of John McKay who was a former uh, president of Princeton Seminary, back kind of when it was a better seminary. Uh, he says at the age of 14, he took his Bible out into the hills of Scotland. You can just imagine that, going to the hills of Scotland with that Bible. And he opened up and started to read in the book of Ephesians. And he said these words about that. He said, I saw a new world. Everything was new. I had a new outlook, new experiences, new attitudes to other people. I loved God. Jesus Christ became the center of 
everything. Like we, we believe God really does speak through this, speaking to us and changes our lives. If we don't believe that, what we're doing this morning is a big waste of time. That, that's why we give Bibles to our sixth graders going to seventh graders. That's why we encourage each other to read the Bible. That's why we gather together and preach from the Bible. That's why I would encourage you to be reading through the book of Ephesians on your own as we go throughout this two-month or a little more than two-month series on Ephesians, that you read through it maybe multiple times over and over to hear God's word yourself. But, but we also need to remember that when we come to the Bible, God used human authors to write the Bible. And when they wrote, they wrote to specific people in specific times and specific places. And so when we read the Bible, we can start to feel like we are being dropped into a different time and place. And it can feel disorienting. Think about even just opening up your, your Bible to Ephesians, which you can do this morning. That's where we're going to be this morning. But we might start to ask, well, who, who are the Ephesians? Where, where did they live? What was their life like? And why is someone writing a letter to them? It can be helpful for us to orient ourselves to the time and place they lived in so that we might better understand both what God was saying to them and what he wants to say to us today as we read this letter. And so just to start out this morning, we're going to ask a couple questions to better orient ourselves to this book of Ephesians that we're going to be studying for the next 10 weeks. And let me encourage you, there's nothing really special about this. You can do this anytime you open up your Bible. If, if you have a study Bible, which kids, maybe your parents have one laying around the house, you can read about what, who was writing this book, what was happening. You, you can look up a video on YouTube. The Bible Project has lots of great videos that tell us more about some of the background books. Like you, we can do this anytime we read the Bible just to understand a little bit more about the books that are written. So first of all, we, we might ask this morning, well, who wrote this letter? And for verse, verse 1, we're told it's Paul, who was formerly known as Saul, who, who was a persecutor of the church until God saved him and radically changed his life. And, and Paul's most likely writing this letter about six to seven years after he's been in Ephesus, helping to plant the church and build up the church there. You, you can read about that in Acts 18 through 20 if you want to. And Paul's likely sitting in a Roman uh, or under Roman house arrest at this time as he writes this letter and then sends it with someone else to go to these churches in Ephesus. Which is what the second question then we might ask, where in the world is Ephesus? Where is this place? I've got a map that would show where it's at modern day. Uh, It's in Turkey, modern day Turkey. Uh, that, that dot is kind of where it would have been. If you go there now, you're able to see the ruins of Ephesus and, and travel around. It was a very important city. Uh, It was the capital of a Roman province called Asia. Uh, It was like a port city, and so it was kind of a commercial hub. And so maybe you just think like big influential city today, maybe someplace like Philadelphia. One of the things Ephesus was well known for was being home to a large temple that was dedicated to the Greek god Artemis. And people, this was actually one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. Uh, it, it's, it's no longer standing today. It's just kind of ruins, but here's a picture of what it might have looked like in kind of its day. And people would travel from all over to see this and, and to worship the god Artemis, and, and it was actually a huge uh, source of income. It, it kind of helped the economy. It was like a tourist attraction in many ways compared to our day. 
And the church in Ephesus was likely made up of different house churches with anywhere between 20 to 40 people belonging to each of these house churches. Now, now why do I mention all that? Why, why should we know that? Is that just kind of boring history? No, because I think it gives us a window into what the Christians who lived at this time might have been experiencing. They lived in a very influential city, and yet it's likely that they felt marginalized and pushed to the side because of their beliefs and because of the God that they worshiped. Just as we at times today might feel marginalized and pushed aside by the culture at large because of the beliefs we hold to and the God that we worship. The the Christians were likely seen as intolerant because they held the view there was only one true God and it wasn't Artemis. And there was only one true way to be saved, his son, Jesus Christ. Just as today, we might, or rather are seen as intolerant because we said there's only one true God and there's only one way to be saved through Jesus, his son. The Christians likely face pressures to conform to the culture. Why can't you just be more like us and worship our God? Or pressure to hide away in their own little bubbles and not engage with other people in the culture out of fear of what they might look like. Maybe similar to us too, who might feel pressure to give up certain beliefs that are more and more despised by our culture. Or to hide away in our own bubbles out of fear of what people might say about us if they knew what we believed. And the Christians in Ephesus likely felt so small, insignificant, and perhaps vulnerable in the face of the cultural, political, and spiritual powers of Ephesus. Just as we at many times today as Christians or the church might feel so small, so insignificant, or maybe even so vulnerable. With all these different pressures, challenges, and voices, and just kind of day-to-day struggles going on, it would have been very easy for the Christians to feel disoriented by all that's happening around them. And so Paul writes this letter to them to orient or reorient their lives around Jesus so that they might live well in the time and place where God has put put them. And in the same way, God might speak to us today to reorient our lives around Christ so that we might live well in the time and place where God has put us. Tony Merida says about the book of Ephesians, he says, if you feel tired, discouraged, beat up, lonely, or confused, then welcome to Ephesians. Our souls need to see this description of the glorious grace of God. We need the gospel every day. Really, I think we can encapsulate the big idea of Ephesians in this way, in this one sentence, which is our big idea for this morning, and it's this. The Christian life is about orienting all of life around Jesus. The Christian life is about orienting all of our life around Jesus. And so we're just going to read two verses this morning, the greeting to this letter, verses one and two, but then seek to show four ways this letter calls us as Christians to orient our lives around Christ. So, so let me pray for us, and then let's read Ephesians 1, verses 1 and 2, and look at those four ways this morning. God, just as we sung this morning, we are here for you. We're here to worship you, and we're here to listen and hear from you. And so we pray that you would speak And we pray that you would, through this time, by the power of your spirit, orient or reorient our lives more and more around Jesus 
so that we might live well in the time and place where you put us today. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the greeting. We, we ask maybe based off that greeting or just based off the bigger picture of this book to Ephesians. What, what are four ways we're called to orient our lives around Jesus? And here's the first one. We're called to orient our lives around what God has done for us in Jesus. It's, it's fascinating to see how this book of Ephesians is structured. It, it can really be broken up into two big parts. We're kind of broken up more under that, but two big parts. Chapters 1 through 3 and chapters 4 through 6. And in chapters 1 through 3, Paul is simply laying out the gospel. It's all about the gospel. Or in other words, it's all about what God has done for us in Jesus. Because we might say, and need to come back to this over and over and over again, the gospel is the good news of what God has done for us in Jesus. A simple version of the gospel is this, that Jesus died and rose again to save sinners. That includes me and you. The the gospel really is that simple. And yet it's also full of depths and beauty, so much so that we could never exhaust the wonder of it. And so in chapters one through three of this book, or this letter, Paul's both trying to remind us of the simplicity of the gospel and yet also help us to see the depths and beauty of the gospel in a new way so that we might marvel at all that God has done for us. Because all along in chapters one through three, he's saying the gospel is what God has done for you and me, not what we do for God. The gospel is what God has done for us, not what we do for God. Here's how I compared it the other week in our baptism class, and maybe this is helpful. The gospel is a little bit like me coming to you and saying, hey, someone has bought you free meals at Chick-fil-A for the next year. That is good news. And it's all based in what someone else has done. They've bought you the meals. Compare that to me coming to you and saying, hey, if you get a job and you work at Chick-fil-A, you will get free meals. That's all about what you must do to get Chick-fil-A. The the gospel is all about what God has done for us in Christ so that we might be saved, so that we might have a relationship with him and get to enjoy him forever. It's not about what we do or how hard we work so that we can earn his approval and enjoy him forever. And it's not that Christians aren't called to live a new life. We are. But we seek to follow Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit. And it's ultimately what God has done for us that empowers us and motivates us and enables us to live for him. Or or here's another way to put that. God's done always precedes and motivates our doing. God's done, what he's done for us, always precedes and motivates our doing, our living, our following Christ. That's why immediately after Paul has spent three chapters just having us marvel at the gospel, in chapter four, verse one, He says, therefore, therefore, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. 
And in chapters four through six, Paul is going to lay out the new life Christians are called to live. How we're called to love and serve each other. The type of people we're supposed to be. The type of spouses we're supposed to be. The type of kids, sons and daughters we're supposed to be. The type of workers we're supposed to be. How we're to live day by day by day as Christians in the most practical aspects of our lives. And yet he's going to do it all on the foundation of and through the lens of the gospel. And even in chapters four through six, he's going to just keep pointing back to the gospel over and over and over again. What, when our pri- here's where we might, how we might apply this. When our primary focus shifts away from what God has done for us in Jesus to primarily or only focusing on what we're supposed to do now as we live for Christ, we start to get disoriented. And Christianity starts to become more and more about a performance where it's all about us trying hard to be good people. So many people grow up with a false idea of Christianity, even and perhaps especially in the church, where we think Christianity is all about me trying hard to be a good person. I I remember hearing someone who, who was a Christian talk about a friend who wasn't, and he said of this person, he said, yeah, he really needs to get his act together. And I wish I could go back to that conversation and say, no, no, he needs to realize he can't get his act together. And his only hope is to run to Christ, trust Jesus to save him, and then ultimately change him. Think about even who's, who's writing this letter, Paul. Paul doesn't wake up one day and say, man, I should probably really get my act together. I should probably start going to church, clean myself up. No, Paul is literally on his way to imprison Christians and likely kill some of them. Like that's what he's doing. And bam, Jesus shows up and saves him and then starts to radically change this person who's a missionary to the entire world at that point. And it's not about getting your act together. It's about look at what Christ has done. And now as I orient my life around him by the power of God's spirit, he makes me more and more into a new person. That's why we need to orient our lives around what God has done for us in Christ. Second, we could put it this way. We're called to orient our lives around our position in Jesus. Paul Paul hits on something even in the greeting of this book that's going to play out throughout the entire letter of Ephesians. And it's, it's this, it's this idea. That Christians are people who live in two different worlds or two different positions, or two different places. Did you catch what what he says in this greeting? He's writing to those who are in Ephesus and in Christ. Right in this letter, those who are in Ephesus and those who are in Christ. We we might take the, the latter of those first and just put it this way. The Christian belongs to another world. The Christian belongs to another world. In Christ is one of Paul's favorite ways for speaking about Christians and and talking about the fact that you were united together with Jesus through faith. And and yet in Ephesians, he's especially going to hit on how that means that we are our home, the place where we belong is a different place, a different world. And so in Ephesians 2, 5 through 6, he says this, even when we were dead in our trespasses, 
God made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Do you hear that? Not that he will one day seat us in the heavenly places. Right now, if you're a follower of Christ, you are in some way seated in the heavenly places with Christ Jesus. Your, your home is in a different realm, a different dimension, a different place, however you want to put it. But then we might ask, well, what, what are the heavenly places? Right? Is that, we're, we're kind of in the clouds somewhere? What, what, what is that? Richard Koken says the, the heavenly realms are the spiritual and eternal dimensions in which Christ has already been resurrected and enthroned in glory over Satan and all his powers. Another way Paul speaks about this is to say that the Christian, the follower of Christ, those who've trusted in Christ, are part of this new humanity, that we're a new man or a new race that God is creating. Here's a way that maybe we could put that and think about that. That if you are a Christian, in some sense, you are from the future. Like in some sense, you are from the future. You you are like an iPhone or iPhone 14 that's been sent back into the day where people only communicate through telegraph. Because as a Christian, you you are someone who represents the new creation that God is bringing, where Jesus is going to reign over everything. And that even now he's doing that in your life and my life as he's making us new creations, as Jesus reigns in our life. Now stop and think about an implication of that with me. In our own day and our own place, if you are a Christian, you will likely be called to or looked at as backwards, old-fashioned, out of place, hindering progress. And those are just the nice words. And, And yet you and I need to realize this world is passing away. And in fact, if you are a follower of Christ, you belong to the future. You are not backwards. You represent where history is headed in God's hands. And yet God has placed us here and now so that we might be ambassadors to this world right now. The the Christian lives as an ambassador in this world. That's why Paul writes to those who are in Ephesus. God has placed them and us in a very specific time and place so that we might be ambassadors of Christ, of the new humanity, and the new world that God is ultimately creating in Christ. Let's just stop and recognize it can be hard to live as a Christian in this world. We, we, we likely feel that at times now and maybe feel that more and more. The Ephesians would have felt that even more than us. When Paul is in Ephesus as a missionary, you can read about this in Acts 18 through 20, there's this time where the city kind of gets stirred into a riot because the people who are benefiting from the worship of Artemis, selling idols and trinkets as people come to the temple, realizing they're starting to lose money because people are becoming Christians. And so they whip the whole city up into this kind of riot and they grab some Christians and they run into this theater that's at Ephesus. I've got, I've got a picture of the theater actually from someone from Keystone who's there. It, it's a theater that people estimate could sit, estimate could sit 20,000 to 25,000 people. Right? So think almost a small sports stadium. 
And we're told for two hours, as the Christians maybe are standing down front on that platform, the people shout, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Can you, can you imagine being a Christian there? If I'm there, I sense, man, I'm really out of place here. And things might not go well for me here. I mean, maybe just a small comparison could be for us to think of it in this way. It might be a little bit like if you were a Dallas Cowboys fan and you went to a home game at the Philadelphia Eagles Stadium, the Lincoln Financial Field, dressed in all your Dallas Cowboys get-up. You got your Dak Prescott jersey on, your Cowboys hat on, and whatever other gear. And as you walk into the Eagles Stadium, you immediately sense, man, I'm out of place here. I don't know about these Eagles fans. This might not go well for me. Maybe I should just take my jersey off, my hat off, and kind of blend in to make sure things don't go poorly for me. It's really easy as a Christian to just want to blend in, to be cool, to be culturally relevant, to be politically correct, to not stick out because of what we believe or how we live to keep our mouths shut and our lives as similar as possible. We, we may not feel the same pressures to conform as the Ephesians, but we still face all sorts of pressures to conform and blend in. Whether you're at school or in the workplace or with friends or maybe even perhaps especially online, to just blend in. Yet, yet in Christ, we're called to live differently. And not just differently, but better God is going to lay out in Ephesians 4 through 6 what it means for us to live differently as followers of Christ. And it's not just living differently, it's saying this is a better way to live than the culture that's around you. Remember, we're from the future. We are iPhone 14s in the days of telegraphs. And who would want to go back to a telegraph when you have the iPhone 14? Who would want to go back to living the old way? when God says you belong to the future in some sense. And yet the life Christ calls us to live will put us at odds with this world. Don't don't be surprised when that happens. Don't be surprised when that happens. But when it does, reorient yourself to your true home and your true position in Christ, where you ultimately belong. Third, we could say this. We're called to orient our lives around who we are in Jesus. If you look back in verse 1, Paul writes this letter to the saints who are in Ephesus and who are faithful in Christ Jesus. When you hear the word saint, what do you think of? Here's, here's what we might be prone to think of. That, that they're kind of the, some elite group of Christians. The best of the best. Maybe they're sort of like the Navy SEALs of Christians. Right? Like they're the ones who are really doing stuff, making damage. Saint is actually one of Paul's favorite words of how he refers to Christians. 39 times in his letter, he calls Christians saints. Nine times alone in the letter of Ephesians. It's how he refers to everyday, average, ordinary Christians who still struggle with sin and fail in so many ways. And I take that second part of this first verse, and are faithful in Christ Jesus to mean, and are trusting and believing in Christ Jesus. Do you believe in Jesus? 
Have you repented of your sin and are you trusting him to save you and, and following him as your Lord? Then you are a saint. Which leads us then to ask, well, what is a saint? Right? What does that mean? Maybe we throw that around in church and we don't really know. What does it mean? It's this idea of being set apart by God, being his treasured, prized possession. In Christ, this is who you are. This is who I am. Not because of anything we've done, but because of what Jesus has done for us. Because Jesus gives us a new identity. And saints not the only way Paul refers to Christians in Ephesians. Listen to some of the other ones. He refers to us as chosen by God, loved, adopted, heirs of God, God's masterpiece or workmanship, members of God's family, members of Christ's body, and so much more. We can so easily forget who we really are as Christians. And when we do it, when we do, it often ends up causing problems. I, I've got a picture of someone you'll probably recognize, kids. Do you know who this is? Buzz Lightyear, Buzz Lightyear, right? And, and in Toy Story, and I'm talking about uh, Toy Story 1 here, uh, which is obviously the best Toy Story in case you were wondering, uh, Buzz Lightyear has this identity crisis, right? Where he thinks he is a space ranger. And Woody is just trying to convince him over and over again, no, Buzz, you are not a space ranger. You're just a toy. Christianity is like that, except opposite because we're so prone to think I'm just a blank fill in that blank with whatever you think about yourself whatever you heard other people say about yourself I'm just a blank and God in Ephesians is saying here's who you really are in Jesus you are not just a toy you're a space ranger or better terms you're not just whatever label you put on yourself you are a saint you are chosen you're loved you're a member of God's very own family. And as we discover who we are in Jesus, we're then meant to live like that's true. We're meant to live like our new identity is who we are. Again, you can think of Buzz Lightyear, what he's trying to convince him that he's a toy so that he lives like a toy. Again and again in Ephesians, God is over and over again trying to convince us and remind us of who we are so that we might live like it's true. Again, you, th this can be compared to the structure of Ephesians, and I'm generalizing a little bit here, but chapters one through three are sort of saying, this is who you are. And chapters four through six are sort of saying, now live like it's true. This is part of how we grow as Christians. We discover or we remember who we are in Christ, what God says about us, and then by the power of his spirit, we seek to live like that's true. Even though we still sin and fail miserably at it, which is why it's good it's our identity no matter what. But yet by God's grace, we grow more and more into that in reality. You can see this even with the term saint. Paul says in Ephesians 1, you are saints. And then in Ephesians 5, he's going to say, okay, here's how saints live. Live like that's true. So stop for a moment with me and think about how countercultural this is. The, the culture at large would say to you and I, to our kids and others, look within and discover who you are and then live that out. And God says, look at me and let me tell you who you are and then live that out. Like that is a radical abandoning of ownership of our lives where we don't even get to determine who we are, but God tells us who we are 
and then we're called to live like that's true. And yet the identity that God gives us is always far better than any identity you and I would choose for ourselves. When we forget who we are in Christ, we start to become disoriented. We start to think we have to craft our own identity, which sounds good, but it's actually a burden because it leaves us exhausted from performing over and over and over again. Where God says to us, stop trying to create your own identity. Let me give you a better one. The one that I give you in my son and then live like that's true. That's what it means to orient our lives around who we are in Christ. And then fourthly, you might say this, we're called to orient our lives around our relationships in Jesus. Paul concludes this greeting by saying this, grace to you and peace from God our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. It's almost the exact same thing Paul says in every single of his 13 letters in his greetings. Grace, we say, is God's undeserved favor to us based on what he's done and continues to do for us, though we are undeserving sinners. And peace is what we are given because of God's grace. First of all, peace with God, that we have this new relationship with God through Jesus. We're welcomed by him. We're accepted by him. We're loved by him. And we have a relationship with him because of Jesus. That, That is the most important relationship of your life. If you have it, it's the most important one. If you don't have it, it would be the most important one. And it's why God calls you to trust in Christ. It means that when we pray, God hears us. It means as I I go throughout this life, I can trust God to provide for me because I'm his son. It means that no matter what comes my way, I believe God will hold on to me and care for me through it. It means that my future is I'm gonna live with God forever and enjoy him forever. That's the, the most important relationship of our lives. When I put my son down to bed sometimes, I'll ask him three questions. Again, sometimes, depending how the night's gone. And there's nothing, there's nothing significant about these questions. They're, they're just questions that are really meant to remind him, and I think even more so, me, of the gospel. And here, here's what they are. The first one is, how do we know that God loves us? Right, we say that God loves me. How do we know that God loves me? You might say, well, because the Bible tells me so. I, absolutely. How do we know the Bible tells us so? Here's the answer we get to that question. How do we know God loves us? Because he sent his son Jesus to die for our sins. Second question then is, did did Jesus stay dead? No, he rose back to life. That's where my eyes get big and I'm like, you mean he rose, he didn't stay dead, he rose back to life? What? Which then leads to, well, what does that mean for us? And the answer is that we can have a relationship with him and live with him forever. And I'll say, man, that's the gospel. That's the best news ever, that God would love us and save us so that we can enjoy him forever. And yet Paul wants to be clear in Ephesians that while this is the most important relationship, there's a second one that follows closely behind it and is tied in with it. And it's this, that we are given a new relationship with other Christians. More than any other of Paul's letters, Ephesians emphasizes the importance and the incredible significance of the church. Over and over and over again, Paul's gonna highlight, if we are in Christ and we have peace with God, that means we also have peace with one another. And so we are together with one another in Christ. The church is massively important in God's eyes. 
Just in Paul's letter to the Ephesians alone, here's how he refers to the church. You are Jesus's body. You are God's inheritance. You are the household, the family of God. You are God's dwelling place. You are the place where God's manifold wisdom is made known. And you are Jesus' bride who he died to pay for and save and more. Do do you see how important the church is to God? You see how important? I just want to ask, how how important would you say the church is in, in your own eyes? See, when God saves people, he doesn't just save them to himself. He saves them to belong to a church. And the church is not God's side hustle. It is a central part of his eternal plan where he's gathering people together in Christ and then conforming them more and more to the image of Christ as they gather together. So I want to ask a question. Where does the church rank in your priority for your own life and your priority for your family's life? Where does gathering together with the church, serving each other in the church, praying for each other, encouraging each other, and going together into the world with each other, where does that rank as a priority? And I don't mean like where would we say that it ranks? I want to press a little and say, no, where does it actually rank based off our lives, our schedules, and our actions? Is it a top priority? Or does it take a back seat that we say, I'll gather with the church as long as I don't have anything else going on or no other prior commitments that get in the way? Is it a priority right, right now, today, for your family? Or is it a, a priority that you say, down the road, I'll get to that, or we'll get to that when we have more time and, and it's a, a better time for us? The, the less church is a priority for us, for our families, the more likely it is we will diminish as Christians rather than actually growing and maturing as Christians. And, and I, I say that and ask that question not as a guilt trip, I say it because I believe that when we fail to make church a priority, we actually miss out on a massive means of God's grace in our lives that he wants to use. And and don't just take my word for it. My word doesn't matter. Read through Ephesians and see, is it there? Is it actually there? Is what God is saying actually in there? And if it is, then we take God's word for it ultimately. When we start to disconnect from or fail to disconnect with the church at all, we start to get disoriented. Because one of the very reasons that we gather week in and week out is to reorient ourselves as we sing, as we study the Bible, as we spend time with one another, to reorient ourselves around Jesus. We want Jesus to be the fixed point of our lives, and so it's why we keep coming back over and over again in a world that can so easily disorient us. A couple weeks ago, I was at Dutch Wonderland again with my son, and there's a ride there that we decided we're going to try out for the first time. I've never been on this ride before. It's the Tilt-A-Whirl. At Dutch Wonderland, it's called the Turtle-Whirl. Got a picture of it, I think, on the slides. And so I saw this ride, and we saw, like, yeah, let's do it. Let's get in line. Look good. We get in line, and we're waiting, and the ride's going. And, and I'm watching one particular person on the ride. It's a dad who's on the ride with his two young kids. And the ride starts out, and he's smiling and laughing and having a great time. All right, this is a good, this is a good choice. We're going to ride this ride. 
And yet every time he comes around, his face changes just a little bit. Like I've got my eyes locked in on him. And eventually we're like maybe a minute into the ride and I see like he is just trying to get through this. He's got this like, right? And all of a sudden I'm starting to second guess. Oh man, I don't know if we can do this. More, more specific, I don't know if I can do this, but I don't want to look bad in front of my son, so I can't get out of this line. What, right? So I'm nervous. We, we get on the ride. The bar comes down over us. And in that moment, I look down, and I see this little white piece at the bottom of our turtle. And so I make this decision. I say, my eyes are going to be locked in on that piece. Like, my eyes are just locked in on that piece. And you know what I found? That as long as my eyes were fixed on that piece, no matter how fast we were spinning, how much we were going up and down, I was good. But as soon as I got my eyes off of it and started looking out, I started to get really disoriented and sick. That fixed point kept me oriented in the midst of so many things spinning around me. We live in a world where there's so many voices, so many pressures, so many circumstances, and all that's spinning around us can leave us so disoriented. And yet part of how we're meant to live as Christians is to keep getting our eyes back onto the fixed point of what God has done for us, of where our home really is because of Christ, and of who we are in Jesus. That's why we read the Bible. That's why we gather together on a Sunday morning, and that's why we're going to read through and preach through the book of Ephesians. Let's pray. Father, we praise you for being the one who is able to, to orient us in a world that can feel so disorienting at so many times. God, we we pray that more and more you would help us to fix our eyes, our minds, and our hearts on Jesus. To daily remember all that you've done for us in Christ. To be people who know that that our home is not ultimately this world, and, and yet you've placed us here for a purpose and to be people who remember who we are in Christ. I pray that we would cherish our relationship with you and our relationship with other Christians, and that you would use the church as a means of grace to help us grow and mature to be more like Christ in this world. pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.